an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bennell, resident historian for Cairo Radio. Heard with Dave Ross Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, there's a new effort to restore Mount Rainier's indigenous name. But what about Mount Baker? That was our best guess, is that somehow the two were intermingled in the interview. So the local promoter said, aha, this is the Indian name for Mount Baker. And then, from the archives, long-lost radio ads for Washington State Ferries. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. All right, our resident historian Felix Bennell joins us Friday mornings for All Over the Map, a quick look at the stories behind the names of local places and things. This week, in the middle of World War II, in fact, 77 years ago tomorrow, the Port of Seattle renumbered all the piers on the Seattle waterfront. Morning, Hannah. Good yeah, morning. I, I, hey, I think about, you know, the old Pier 48 where Northwest Book Fest was held in the 90s or Pier 54 where Ivers has been forever. I've taken those numbers for granted all my life, but they do only date back to May 1st, 1944. That was when a new system was adopted with pier numbers from 24 to 91 going from south to north along the central waterfront. The numbers replaced what had been something of a hodgepodge of piers named for the businesses there. Uh, there was Whiz Fish Products Company or Isaacson Ironworks or Leslie Salt Company. Because, you know, or for the adjacent street, like uh, the Bell Street Terminal, which still has most of that name, even though it also became Pier 66 76, 77 years ago. Now, the, the numbers below 24 were reserved for the Duwamish Waterway in West Seattle, and I think they did use most of them. I've looked at the charts pretty closely. They curl around Harbor Island in counterclockwise direction, then reverse direction moving west. It's all pretty confusing. I think they got down to Pier Number 2. I couldn't find Pier Number 1. I think number two was the lowest. Now, numbers above 91 were reserved for the Ship Canal, Lake Washington, and Lake Union. I don't think they ever used any of those, as far as I can tell. I did find a Port of Seattle map from 1918 that showed the names of all the old piers, and we'll have that at my northwest. It's kind of a fun list of old Seattle companies and steamship lines from a time when the waterfront was all business. You know, it wasn't like a place you walked around and ate popcorn. It was all about moving people and uh, merchandise through the, through the piers. There was also an earlier series of numbered piers in the middle of the central waterfront. It added to the confusion. You know, the public entity of the port was only created in 1911. It took decades for them to gain control of what had been a hodgepodge of privately owned uh, piers and wharfs that railroad and steamship companies owned on Elliott Bay. And it's really no surprise the new numbering system came in during World War II. That was when tons of military supplies and thousands of soldiers and sailors were moving through Seattle. I mean, really, the, the waterfront was completely militarized during the war. The military, they controlled the harbor. They saw the need to make the pier system easier to navigate, and it's really easy to see why that made sense to do that. And in the old newspaper clippings, the pier numbers appear to have caught on by the late 1940s in terms of the, you know, the media talking about where something happened or where something was going to happen. But I'd guess there were probably still some crusty old sea dogs who never stopped calling their favorite pier the Grand Trunk Pacific Wharf or the Dodwell Wharf or whatever. But, <laughs> yeah, it's 77 years ago tomorrow. Now, I had two little quick updates on the okay. tail end of the story. Um, one is at the old Renslow Trestle we talked about here a few months ago. It crosses I-90 east of Ellensburg, carries the Palouse to Cascades Trail. It's officially open as of yesterday to hikers and bikers and equestrians. It's this amazing. If you've driven, ever driven across the yeah. state, you know the trestle I'm talking about. Yeah, it's open now with a safety uh, safety rail and everything, so it's open to the All public. All right, just in time. La 
Yeah, and last quick update. We talked back in September about the city of Spokane trying to adopt a new flag. Uh-huh. And if you, if you have a city of Spokane library card, today's your last day to go online and vote for your favorite of the 12 finalists. We have a link at My Northwest. So uh, if, if you're a Spokaneite, you can get online and choose which uh, what the city's going to adopt for its new flag. Washington State apples, the fruit that's good for you. Mount Baker, Hatcom County, the Indian name for the mountain varied from tribe to tribe, but two of the most consistently used were the Nirxix Coma Cultion, for white, steep mountain, and the Loomis Cultion. Last week, Cairo 7 reported that the Puyallup tribe is launching a new effort to restore the indigenous name of Tacoma to Mount Rainier. But our resident historian Felix Bennell has been looking north into confusion around what's been considered the indigenous name for Mount Baker for the past century. Felix is brought to us by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Good morning, Felix. Good morning, Aaron. Yeah, you know, with the clear skies this past month, I really noticed how visible Mount Baker is from so much of western Washington. Um, mm. and, and unlike the battle between Seattle and Tacoma civic leaders over the name of Mount Rainier that goes back to the 1890s, or this new effort from the Puyallup tribe, I haven't been able to find the same kind of tension over the name of Mount Baker. But it turns out there's some confusion over what the true indigenous name for that mountain was, if there ever was a single indigenous name. Now, when the Spanish explored the area in 1790, they called it La Montaña del Carmelo, which uh, referred to the white robes of Carmelite monks, but they didn't really tell anybody. It was more of a, a reconnaissance mission. It was, of course, a ubiquitous and prolific Captain George Vancouver, who named it for 24-year-old Third Lieutenant James Baker, the first member of his crew of the HMS Discovery to spot the peak. And that actually happened around 5 o'clock in the afternoon near Dungeness Spit, 229 years ago this Friday, April 30th, uh, oh. back in 1792. Now, when I was a kid, we were told that the quote-unquote Indian name for Mount Baker was Comacultion, and that this meant white and steep. And I believe that most of my adult life, and I only l- recently learned that that's probably not correct, but oh. it actually appears a ton of places. Um, Comacultion was used by the Seattle Times just last month, and I used it in a My Northwest piece about Mount Baker's volcanic eruptions um, that were in the 70s. About two years ago, I used it in a My Northwest piece. Now, in the past decade or so, there have been new theories about Comacultion from a professor in Bellingham named Alan Richardson. He's been studying indigenous languages in the Northwest for decades. He co-authored a Nooksack Place Names Guide, and he believes he's untangled the origins of Comacultion as well as why it's not exactly correct. Alan Richardson told me that sometime around 1912, a civic promoter in Bellingham named Charles Finley Easton interviewed a Lummi elder in his 70s named Quina. Quina, in 1912, didn't speak much English, and they were getting translated. His mother was actually from, well, Puget Sound, further south near Seattle, and uh, Tacoma would have been her name for Mount Baker, and Quilshan would have been his father's name for Mount Baker. And it's possible, that was our best guess, is that somehow the two were intermingled in the interview, so... The local promoter said, aha, this is the Indian name for Mount Baker. So to be really clear, Alan Richardson theorizes that Charles Easton, based on bad translation, put a variation of Tacoma, Mm. which is essentially a Lachute seed word for a big mountain, just like Rainier's indigenous name, that Coma part of Tacoma, together with Kolshan or Quelshan, a Nooksack word meaning the shooting place, maybe about hunting or referring to the volcanic activity atop the mountain. And he put those together to come up with a bad guess for the native name for Mount Baker. 
a better choice would probably have been just the second word, Kolshan, which is based on the Lenuxek word Quelshan. Okay, so Easton was a promoter, and he published a pamphlet about coma Kulshan in 1912. Then the Forest Service built a ranger station in 1933 with a fabulous view of the mountain, and they called it coma Kulshan Guard Station. That's where I first saw the name carved in a sign when I was a little kid. Now, as far as I can tell, there's no formal effort underway to restore Mount Baker's indigenous name, but I got to wondering about Kuma Kulshan Guard Station. That's a federal facility that carries the not-quite-correct name. And I wondered, has any group expressed interest in changing its name to the more accurate Kulshan Ranger Station? Colton Whitworth is public affairs officer for the Mount Baker Snoqualmie National Forest. So this is really the first that we've heard of any suggestions to change the name of the Kuma Kulshan Guard Station. And our response to, to any folks that would, you know, suggest the name change would be that we're really kind of going to work with our tribal partners. And if there's ever, um, you know, a suggestion from them, especially, then we wouldn't hesitate in, in you know, taking care of uh, whatever requests that they would like to and working with them to either change the name or how we would need to do it. It's not something that we would uh, be opposed to. And Colton Whitworth mentioned the Forest Service's tribal partners. In this case, there's three tribes closely associated with, uh, closely associated with Mount Baker on the American side of the border, Lummi, Nooksack, and Upper Skagit, all of whom had slightly different names for the peak that reflect the role the mountain played, whether right nearby or visible in the distance. Scott Schuyler's Cultural Natural Resources Policy Representative for the Upper Skagit Tribe. Uh, that, that group has been in the Skagit Valley and the Baker River Valley for 8,000 years. Renaming Comacolchon is not something that's been on their radar either. No, it hasn't been an issue for us. You know, there's there are some. I would just point out there's always historical inaccuracies because uh, you had tribes in different areas. You know, we had of course the Upper Skagit and Baker Valley, the Nooksack across the the mountain on the other side, and the Lummi to the uh, to the west. And so uh, each had their own place names and and names for certain points. And Scott Schuyler says the Upper Skagit Tribe would need to consult with elders and tribal government before taking any formal position on changing the name of the ranger station. I heard essentially the same thing from George Swanasset Jr. of the Nooksack Tribe, and in not so many words from a spokesperson for the Lummi Nation as well. Meanwhile, Colton Whitworth says the Forest Service isn't going to wait. We have a tribal liaison intern that works very closely with, with the Lummies, and, and we're actually going to have him reach out to them to see if this would be something that they would like to you know, see changed. You know, and they'll reach out to the other tribes as well, not just the Lummies. And, and changing the name of, for, of a Forest Service building is one thing. It's almost like an administrative move, and it sounds like it could be fairly straightforward. Um, but could this be the beginning of a possible effort to restore an indigenous name to Mount Baker, which is a much more convoluted process involving the Board of Geographic Names? It's really hard to say. Um, either way, Lummi Elder Quina's conversation with Charles Easton more than a century ago is a good indicator to Professor Alan Richardson of how challenging it could be to reach consensus around a single indigenous name for the volcanic peak. Do you use the Nooksack name? Do you use the Lummi name? Do you use the Skagit name? Whose name do you use? When you have four or five different native languages, or six if you count people out in the islands far enough that, were, that could see Mount Baker, but each with a different name for the mountain. So how do you choose a name? Kulshan or Kulshan is probably the closest thing to it, something that people might agree to. Yeah, and that name Kulshan or Kulshan, that's the originally a Nooksack term, and it was some variation was adopted by those three tribes around the mountain. So that might have the greatest hope if if there's urge to do this. It was just this was sort of me trying to see if there was any interest in doing this, and that that Forest Service move to change the name of the guard station that would be relatively easy by comparison. So. Um, for me, it's the fascinating layers of history that are just visible. If you just take a take a moment to read a sign and do a little digging, there's so much more to the story than just what's on the surface. Yeah, this is crazy, Felix. Uh, I, I I really enjoyed this. I didn't expect to uh, 
to be so uh, so many uh, twists and turns and mistranslations and uh, <laughs> yeah. can we do this? Will we do this? Yeah, that's and and a geographical board. That's how you rename a mountain. Yeah, uh, it's a federal uh, government thing. Yeah, and you know they did this successfully in Alaska. Mount McKinley became reverted to to Denali. Ah, oh, right. And there's yeah. the effort, in, effort down south to convert uh, Mount Rainier back to an indigenous name. So it's it's part of this ongoing dialogue of what it means for. You know, people who came here from far away and settled and, and the people who've been here for thousands of years. It's, it's, and I like that in Baker, it's not contentious. It's just a dialogue. And that, that's, right. that's always the best case scenario. Couldn't agree more. That is our historian, Felix Bennell. Thank you so much, Felix. Thanks, Aaron. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, a few years ago, scripts turned up for some 1950s radio commercials for Washington State Ferries. So we brought them back to life. On the Black Ball Ferry Line, up in Seattle, where the sunshine seldom shines, up in Seattle, all the whistles go. And emerging now from the crypt deep beneath the Bonneville Broadcast Center, where the radio archives are stored, and there's... Old wind-up Victrolas and a lot of cobwebs. Here's Felix Bunnell, resident historian. 65 years ago today, what happened? Well, 65 years ago this month, the Washington State Ferry System was created from the old uh, private Black Ball Ferry Line. It was privately owned and operated, but the state bought it for $5 million bucks mm-hmm. 65 years ago. That'd be about $46 million in uh, 2016 dollars. What a deal. Yeah, and it actually was uh, self-supporting for the first uh, 10 or 15 years. Yeah, they started not to anymore. Add, yeah, yeah, it's a little <laughs> different now. Originally, it was just going to be temporary. They're going to put toll bridges across all those uh, gaps where the ferry really? systems are. Yeah, that was the goal originally. That's what toll they said. Anyway. To that was the to- promise they made, Toll bridge Dave. to Bremerton? Yeah, everywhere. Whoa. So uh, a friend of mine at the State Archives, Benjamin Helley, came across these old scripts. These are promoting the ferry system from 1952. They have, there's no recordings known to 1952. exist. 1952. Yeah, I think that's 64 years ago. What are we going to do there's no recordings? Well, I thought, gee, what could we do? I, hey, I know a guy who can do sound effects. I know a guy who can play the concertina. As a treat for our radio listeners. As you would. Yeah, we're going to recreate radio advertising history, kind of like Ron and Don doing Online Trading Academy with uh-huh. the 1952 version, <laughs> with you playing the avuncular Reg Miller, who's a Reg real Miller. guy, real guy who was on radio back yeah. in those days, mm. and Colleen playing the officious know-it-all, mm. Anne Green, who's mm. kind of like Betty Crocker. Not too uh-huh. much of a stretch for me. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and Curtis Takahashi playing the bathroom plunger and utility bucket. Yep. Oh, look at that. <laughs> That's very nice. And Rob Whitmer playing concertina. <laughs> so it's, this is what radio advertising so set was like this up. When did, years, 64 years ago. Sorry. When did this run? Uh, June 30th, 1952. I think it might have been on KJR or at least or maybe a couple other stations, but definitely on KJR. And uh, this was the way the ferry system was promoting itself as something more than just a practical means of transportation. They were trying to get tourists yeah. and local people thinking of it as a way to entertain themselves. Okay. All right. So we will now uh, take you back to 1952. Yep. Uh, s- about two months after I was born. <laughs> and this is what ran on the radio. Good evening. This is Anne Green, travel consultant for the Washington State Ferries. I'm Reg Miller. Come cruising with us now on Puget Sound, Monday through Friday at this time. We'll tell you all about where to go and what to do in the magnificent Evergreen Playground, presenting America's finest marine scenery. Our topic, interesting trips for youngsters. 
Reg, you're well qualified to answer this question. Do school-age youngsters ever get bored during the long summer vacation? Oh, yes, and Those up to the teens do quite often, especially when it rains and they can't go outdoors. What about other times? How do you explain that? Well, it's fairly obvious. During the school year, a child's days are pretty well organized between study and play, and he generally has lots of things to keep him busy. There's not much of a break in this routine, even on weekends, since most children attend Sunday school and church. Well, then along comes summer with all its free time the child can sleep later in the morning and so what to do when the usual round of neighborhood fun is exhausted well and the lucky kids go to the numerous camps in the puget sound area others find a welcome change when dad has his vacation but the majority are reduced to whatever activities happen to be at hand i would imagine it requires a certain amount of adjustment oh it isn't as tough on the youngsters as it is on the mothers Mm -hmm. now in addition to all the housework mothers are faced with the problem of keeping their children amused and out from underfoot. The wise ones take them to parks and out swimming, downtown shopping, visiting with friends, and so on. Anything within reason to help a youngster stay happy. I see. Thanks, Reg. But, Anne, what has all this got to do with us? Are we turning the program into a child guidance seminar? Only to the extent of passing along to mothers what I consider an entertaining and instructive what-to-do suggestion for the benefit of themselves and their children. And from us, that suggestion is a short water trip across Puget Sound some morning or early afternoon. It's an idea with a great deal of merit, Anne. And as for being a change in the routine, it's both different and inexpensive. And no extra fussing or planning is required. It's as simple as a trolley ride to the Coleman Ferry Terminal and the purchase of tickets to Bremerton or Winslow. For the child, there's the exciting maritime activity of Seattle's harbor, busy with ships of every size and kind making the water slosh around them, as we're hearing right now, and the thrill of passing over the smooth surface of Elliott Bay aboard a powerful ferry boat in the midst of all this aquatic hustle and bustle. He has a thousand impressions of sights and sounds fascinating and wonderful. And on a clear, hot day, how welcome the view of surrounding foothills and mountains. How pleasant the coolness of Puget Sound breezes to mother. She can relax, do a bit of knitting and sewing, read a story in her latest women's magazine, you know, how to make your husband happy, or just take it easy and enjoy herself. I love it when mom sews. She can still have her morning or afternoon cup of coffee, too, because those ferryboat lunchrooms are really proud of their coffee. There's some right now. Of course, there are snacks for hungry... Hang on to your cups, by the way, because it can get rough out there. There are snacks for hungry young appetites as well, quickened by the fresh air and walks along the promenade deck. You know, Reg, rates are low, too, and children 5 through 11 are only charged half fare. As an aid in giving a child something new and unusual to see and do this summer, a short water trip across the sound aboard a Washington State ferry is a sensible and interesting idea. If you'd like information about rates and schedules, just telephone Seneca 4755 in Seattle. Excellent, Anne. And now I'd like some information about tomorrow afternoon's program. Well, we're going to devote our next program to an island tour, Reg. That sounds wonderful. Mm-hmm. And scene! Yes, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm Felix Bunnell at Cairo Radio in Seattle. Follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at MyNorthwest.com. And please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. Hi, folks. This is Gene Autry and his Hollywood friends wishing K-I-R-O all the success in the world. So long.